Truly, it will be wonderful to gaze upon the glories of our God in eternity. There are times on this earth where we are given that, a sense of that wonder, of that uh, wonderful reality when we will see God. But there are also times when we are seemingly far from God, and Psalm 61 speaks of that, and we're looking there tonight for our psalm reading, Psalm 61. The psalmist identifies that he is at the ends of the earth, and he's calling to the Lord, and he's doing so because he is weak and he is faint-hearted. How often don't we have a similar experience, a feeling that we are far from the Lord and we need his help, and yet the psalmist then is reminded as he is writing and as he is reflecting that there is a rock who is a solid foundation, even the Lord, who is his refuge, and he turns to him. And then he speaks of how it is his desire that the king's years may endure. The central focus of God's people was the king, was the kingdom and its king. And the psalmist speaks seemingly in first person, but then he talks about the king enduring for eternity. For, may his throne be forever. He's clearly talking about more than just himself, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he closes with that commitment, speaking of his desire to fulfill the word of the Lord in his life and to speak his praises. Let's hear those words, Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Therein is a commitment that we should share, that we fulfill the vows that we make before the Lord, that he is our God and we are his people, those who seek to do his will. And even in those days of weariness, we look up and find our strength Uh, in him. As we cry out to him, we pray that he would hear us. And with that insert in our bulletin, we're going to sing, O God, regard my humble plea. The four stanzas of O God, regard my humble plea. And we're going to sing stanza three a cappella.
Let's turn to the Lord now in time of congregational prayer. Oh God, we ask that you would regard our humble plea that we cannot be so far from thee that you will not hear our cry. We know there are times where we are despairing. There are times when we feel low and Yet we must remember that there is one, a rock, who is higher than we are, even our sure foundation, you, the Almighty God. Lead us there. Lead us to rest there in times of sadness, times of joy, lest we forget where our strength is found. Lord, our souls find shelter in you. You have been a shelter from the foes that are around us. We thank you, dear Father, for the truth that we have to keep us near unto you. In this time of the year when we remember the Reformation and its stirring in the 1500s, Lord, we're so thankful for that rediscovery of the gospel, for those wonderful solas and for the, the instruction concerning Salvation by grace alone. We know, Lord, that it is not our striving that draws us close to you. It is not our striving which keeps us in your hand. It is by your grace that we are called. It is by your grace that you stir in us a a desire to turn to you and to believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that discovery of grace alone, a rediscovery. May we hold on to that as we at times know our own weaknesses and our failings, our sins. We thank you for that rediscovery of faith alone, that we are those who, when connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, as those connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are secure in him, that we have had our sins placed upon him and his righteousness has been credited to our account, that we are seen as righteous in your sight, recipients of everlasting life. Again, Lord, we are confident and we are joyful in that wonderful rediscovery. It's not the strength of our faith that determines the level of our assurance. It is the object of our faith, even in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are in him, we will not be turned away. It is in Christ alone. We thank you for that rediscovery. We would not lose our way, again, focusing on our actions or inactions, our successes or failures. We know that even our best works are as filthy rags before you, but your Son's perfect righteousness, his righteous living, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection, his ascension, now sets before you that wondrous sacrifice and his intercession on our behalf. We need not fear of eternal life and where we will spend eternity. We know that in him we are seated in the heavenlies because of your great grace and mercy. We thank you for your word that scripture alone is sufficient, necessary, powerful. We thank you that in it we read all that we need, all things necessary for life and godliness. 
all things necessary for salvation. Help us, Lord, not to be led astray anywhere else, to be deceived by false teachers. Help us to know the Word, to delight in the Word, to be grounded in the Word, so that just as we have received Christ Jesus as Lord, we would continue to be rooted in Him, built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as we've been taught. Lord, we know that this calls then for you to be glorified alone. To you alone belongs all the glory. It is not anything in us, but it is all your power, all your grace and mercy, all of your wisdom, which we magnify, which we delight in as we worship. And we praise you, dear Father, for that wonderful work of redemption. The way that you have created the world in goodness, though there, and then in the fall you have also promised redemption and then consummation, that glorious renewal one day. We pray for a modern reformation today, a renewed reverence and submission to your word. Give increased joy in believing to us, comfort in your promises, and May we speak of the truth to those around us, having a great confidence that as we do so, you will draw people to yourself. Lord, continue to give us that missionary zeal, that evangelistic fervor, that we would not be Concerned only for ourselves, though certainly we ought to be concerned that we are learning, that we are growing, that we are feeding upon your word, but that we would also think of those who are hurting and who are confused and who are living in sin and, and, and hurting themselves and not even knowing where they can turn or, or that there is a place to turn. Lord, help us to point the way in our word and our deed. We pray that tonight as we hear of your great love, that we would, again, be led to rejoice in you and to delight in you and to want to live for you. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's turn again in our hymnals, this time to 145, Selection C. 145C, I will extol you, O my God, and praise you, O my King. Let's stand to sing those three stanzas, number 145C.
Tonight we turn in a familiar to the, in our Bibles to a familiar passage, John chapter 3, page 887 in the Bibles there, in the chairs in front of you if you don't have your own copy of God's Word. And we consider tonight the, the love of God, our amazing Father and His love for us. There are many aspects uh, of God that we could look at as we think about the fear of God and the God that we fear. We don't often think of the love of God as an aspect that leads to a greater fear or greater awe of God, but it should. Tonight, we, wanna, we want to think about that. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, says this, His greatness, God's greatness, causes us to stand in awe. His holiness lays us prostrate in the dust. His wisdom calls forth our admiration, but his love, rightly understood, causes us to wonder in amazement. I want to see how that is made visible in John's gospel. So we're going to look at John chapter 3 tonight as we hear God's word. Starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet... You do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the inerrant, infallible, and eternal Word of God. 
Dear people of God, if anybody, anyone believes, if there's anything that people believe about God, it's that he's love. And love defined this way, that God's just accepting me the way I am, that he will not make any judgment about the way I live. Now, we sing the song, Just As I Am, and people want to stop right there, Just As I Am. And they say, well, there you go, right in the hymn, it says that I'm to come to God and just as I am and the Lord will accept me. But that's not what the hymn is teaching. It says, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. There's a, there's a call of, of uh, not of personal righteousness, but of our dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed on our behalf. There's no plea of personal righteousness by which we're worthy to be saved. In fact, the greatness of our sin, it's the greatness of our sin that magnifies God's grace and mercy in salvation. Jerry Bridges writes, Some years ago, I prayed that God would show me more of his love. How do you think the Lord answered that prayer? Listen to what he says. He answered that prayer by showing me more of my sin. Not just specific sins I'd committed, but the sinfulness of my heart. Then I began to appreciate more his love to me. I wonder how we receive that or how we think about that. Would we want that answer? Would we expect that answer when we pray, Lord, show me more of your love? Well, John's gospel is all about the Father's love for sinners through his Son. For God so loved the world, or it could be translated, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his only Son. And whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right there, there's an indication that there is something wrong. That there is a judgment that hangs over man. And he goes on to explain, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. How? Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Lord calls us to faith that we would not perish. He provides that salvation that we would not perish but have eternal life. Now John's emphasis on the Father's love for sinners through his Son is not unique to John's gospel as we know, but it's worth considering as we think about how the love, the study of the love of God leads us to a greater awe, greater fear of God. I was going to move this point to a different place in the sermon, but I'm going to take it first, and that is the Apostle John's awe over the love of God. And I just want you to be thinking about this throughout the sermon. Did Question for you, did you know that John never uses his own name in, the, in his gospel? Perhaps you've not noticed that in the study of the gospel. John does not refer to himself by his name. It's always in relation to Jesus. And his moniker, his title is this, the apostle whom Jesus loved. Perhaps you remember that now as I relate that to you. He refers to himself as the apostle or the disciple, rather, whom Jesus loved. He never paints himself in the foreground as a hero, but uses every reference to himself to honor Christ by saying, 
I am the one, the disciple, or the, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. Why does he do that? Why does he refer to himself that way? Well, it's not because he thought himself most loved by Jesus, not because he thought himself the greatest of all the apostles. So that Christ might be glorified in his salvation. It's so that the Father might be glorified in his salvation. He's amazed that God would love someone like him. The disciple whom Jesus loved. John's gospel is about the amazing love that the Father has for sinners. Loving the world in sin so much that he gave Everything, even his only son. That's our story. How amazing is the love of God that he would save even us. What's your story? What's your background? Think about John's story. Think about his background. He was not a gentle soul. He was not one who was short on zeal. He was very zealous for the truth. You remember some stories about John. They're not all recorded in his gospel. But what is he involved in? He's one with James wanting to do what? Call down fire upon the Samaritans because they do not honor Jesus. He's a fiery soul. He's the one involved that James and Peter talking about who is the greatest. And Jesus says, what are you talking? What were you talking about on the road back there? What, what was that all about? And there's nothing. Because they know that they're not supposed to be talking about this or they, they're, they're just a little embarrassed. He's the one who says, well, there's, there's a man who's casting out demons, but he's not, he's not one of us. He's not part of our group. What do we do with this guy? I told him to knock it off. John has a, a great zeal and he's, he's very concerned with what's happening around him and that people be identified with him, with the same level of zeal. Now, you wouldn't know that if you, as you read his gospel because his gospel shows that he's been transformed, that he's been changed, that he's now identifying himself very humbly, the disciple whom, whom Jesus loved. It's, it's beyond my fathoming, he says, but he's, he loved me. Because I know what I was like. John had a passion for truth. He was zealous for truth. And and to be sure, God uses courageous, ambitious, zealous people. But John's zeal was without love. He lacked love. It was a zeal without knowledge, without understanding was not amazed at God's grace and mercy and salvation. He lived zealously thinking that that was the foundation, the ground upon which God loved him. He said, if God's going to love me, let it be because I've done enough, because I've been zealous enough. And that is what the Jewish leaders were teaching. That's what Nicodemus had learned. That's what the rulers of the people had been teaching that we are brought into covenant with God through our uh, uh, sacrifices, through our working. We're kept in the covenant as a result of this. We know as we study the Word of God that we're 
brought in because God is gracious and merciful to give us new life, to work in our hearts, to stir us, turning us from self that we would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. John's gospel shows that he's been changed after being with Jesus. His gospel is not about himself. His focus is on God's amazing love. He's struck by God's love. For God so loved the world, the world in sin, the world, the fallen world, that he gave his only son. As John understood his sin and the greatness of the fallenness of the world, he is amazed that God did not reject the world, did not destroy the world and start over. He loved the world, the world in sin. He sent messengers, the writer of Hebrews says. He sent messengers. He spoke through various messengers preparing the world for that one to come. And then he said through the prophet Isaiah that the one he would send would be a suffering servant, one who would bear our iniquities, the one who would bear our punishment, the one whose punishment would bring us peace between us and God. This suffering one. It was beyond the fathoming of the Jewish leaders that there would be need for that, for they had offered sacrifices over and over and over again. The question is this, how many sins were forgiven by those Old Testament sacrifices? How many, after the thousands and thousands and thousands of animal sacrifices, how many sins were forgiven? Zero. You say, well, what? What? This was, this was a picture of the need for a substitute. This was a picture of a need that, that, that sin had left in, in, our, in, our, in our place, in our position, the need for death, because we have sinned against God. We've, we're conceived in sin. And so the Lord said that blood needed to be shed, that there needed to be life. Life was demanded. But the animal's blood cannot pay for our sins. The blood of goats and bulls cannot satisfy, the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 10. It is only as the Son comes into the world to die, shedding His blood, His perfect blood, in our place, that we might be brought near to God. Well, we will come back to that in a moment, but we need to rehearse The fact that God is to be feared because of judgment. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yet whoever does not believe in the Son of God is condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is only one means by which we can come to the Father, and that is through the Son. Apart from Him, there is no salvation. Apart from Him, there is no justification. John's in awe of God's love because he understands God's hatred of sin. And he does not suppress the truth about God's just judgment against sin. God will punish sin either in the person himself, if he is apart from Christ, or in Christ for the one who trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord. 
Jesus' love is not sappy or overindulgent. He doesn't wink at sin. He calls all people everywhere to repent, even the holiest, to repent of their hypocrisy, of their trusting in their sacrifices, in their religiosity, and to put faith in his Savior. For it's in Christ alone that sinners are saved. John records those words, verse 18. He says at the end of this chapter as well, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God is terribly angry with the sins we are born with and the sins that we commit is what we confess. And they must be punished in keeping with his righteousness. Jesus showed his concern for holiness right at the beginning of the Gospel of John. What does he do? He cleanses the temple. Why does he cleanse the temple? Because it's there's all kinds of there's all manner of pollution in the temple. There's all manner of 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 unrighteousness happening there. And this by way of fulfillment of Malachi chapter three, where there is a warning that the the Lord would come into his temple. Listen to those words, Malachi chapter three. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, that is John the Baptist, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will even refine the sons of Levi, those who are thought to be of the highest order, the highest spiritual order. Jesus says the Son has been entrusted with judgment. John records that in John chapter 5, verse 22. John warns elsewhere that the one who claims to have fellowship with God yet walks in darkness, yet walks in sin, is going to face judgment for he does not have eternal life in him. The one who walks in sin will die in sin, John 8, 24. Those who are not repentant, those who are not trusting in the Son of God. So God is feared because with him there is judgment. Love today is often thought of as, well, give, give whatever would, would build someone up and encourage them without any sort of, of, of a call to Uh, to change, without any call to repent. We pull back on things that need to be said, we say, if, if we're loving as the world describes it today, but it is loving to speak truth. Who doesn't speak truth? The devil. Jesus says he is the father of lies. Why does he lie? Because he doesn't love anyone. He wants all people to perish in sin. He wants no one to find the way to life. He's a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says in John 8. And he continues to lie in order to keep people deceived, that they might die in their sin. Jesus, on the other hand, comes full of what? Grace and truth. He speaks truth, 
And he does so graciously. He did not come, the Father did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus declares that, in so many words, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all like sheep. We've gone astray, every one of us to his own way. All deserve condemnation. For the wages of sin is death. And we should fear God, for he has the power to send soul and body to hell, Jesus says. But the Bible also says that that must be balanced. This fear of God for judgment must also be balanced. There must be an awe. There must be a a wonder at God's love that God forgives. The psalmist says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That you might be held in awe. That we might obey you. That we might heed your commands and know the way to life. To repent of sin. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be saved. The Bible teaches that there is to be awe and gratitude as a part of that fear of God. We're to be in awe that he would save sinners like us. We have to draw near with praise and thanksgiving for the wonderful love that he shows us in forgiveness. We dare not come before him carelessly in our sin as we saw a few weeks ago in Isaiah. But as we draw near, we marvel that we can come near to the throne of grace with confidence. As the writer of Hebrews says it, we draw near to that throne of grace to receive mercy, to find grace to help in time of need. That is what, we, that is what the person who is loved does when he goes to his father. He goes with a great confidence and with great joy. We rejoice when we come near to God in Christ because His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, that we can call Him Abba, Father, dearest Father, the dearest relationship that we have, the relationship of life. The sweetest word that can be proclaimed to the troubled conscience is the free Grace of God and Jesus Christ. He forgives all our sins. The amazing love of God. That we would come before him and say, I am one whom God has loved. Some say it's dangerous to preach the love of God because it can be twisted and misapplied. And that is true. But God is love. I referenced it this morning. 1 John chapter 4, John speaking again, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And what does Jesus speak about when a teacher of the law comes to him? He speaks to him of the love of his Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We receive that word with reverence and awe, with wonder and joy, even as the angels did when the Son of God was 
I took on flesh, as we read in Luke chapter 2. You see, you have to understand something. The Pharisees and, and, and uh, uh, Nicodemus and this group, they, they were expected that they were first in line before the Lord amongst the, the Jews. They were those who were separated from other people. And they saw God's work in the end as punishing, as condemning all those who were not them. Jesus came and said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. And he said that all people needed his saving work. He wanted people to come in and not be kept out. He came to open the way to God, to show the heart of God, not to reinforce the prejudice of Jewish leaders. He said even to Nicodemus, even to you. Those words not in the text, but implied, unless... You are born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God, even the holiest, even the most religious. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he or she is born from above, given eyes to see God's salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul highlighted the benefits or the privileges of the Jews when he said to them was given the covenants, the law, worship, and the promises. What a privileged position. But they put their hope in their system, not in God. In their sacrificial system, blood was shed to show that life was demanded for sin, but the sacrifices were substitutionary. The animal blood could not atone, as we've already said. That's why these sacrifices happened year after year after year. They needed to look forward to something more. Who could provide the appropriate sacrifice? No man, but God alone. This was pictured already back in their father Abraham and his experience when when God provided a substitute, a a ram in the thicket for his son when Abraham was tested to offer up his son, his only son, to show his trust in God. A great price needs to be paid for our sins. God said it would be through a Messiah who would bear the judgment for sins. He would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brings us peace is upon him. The Lord would lay on him the iniquities of us all. Judge them in him. And this one to come would be a savior, not just to ethnic Israel, but to the nations. One who had come to usher in a new covenant, a new Israel, the church, the Israel of God. The Son left heaven to take on flesh that he might face God's severe judgment. And when he did, darkness descended upon Calvary there at the cross. There was another time when there was this vision of God's great holiness. It was upon the mountain there in Mount Sinai thousands of years before. What happens there in Exodus 20? The people are are, are fearful. They're in awe of that thunder on the mountain, the cloud on the mountain, and they say, you speak to us, for we do not want God to speak to us. 
When the darkness descended upon Calvary many years later, the people, at least insofar as we can tell, many there were simply mocking, not realizing what God was doing. We have to ask ourselves, should there have been any less fear, any less awe in that moment? One could argue there should have been more awe and wonder that God was now punishing sin in his own son. That those who believe in him might live. God's love draws wonder from John again and again. He says, how is it that God could love this disciple? How is it that God could love me and all of my hatred and all of my zealous attacks? And he was not the only one. You remember how Paul was met on the road by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he is met on the road, he is in wonder. Who is it, Lord? Who are you? And he says, I am the one you are persecuting. The one you are standing over against in your hatred, in your attacks. He is transformed and he is brought to a realization that God is, God's salvation is grounded in his grace and his mercy. And he says in Ephesians that God's grace and mercy is what ought to be magnified, that we ought to be in awe of it. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. All praise belongs to the Lord alone for our salvation, not in ourselves. Paul says, we like the rest, we're dead in sin, objects of wrath, but God saved us according to his rich mercy. There's a greatness in the love of God, a, a reason to call, or, or, or a focus to draw out the awe from our hearts. He provides that wondrous salvation. God sent his son into the world to save through him. He is the one who has come to provide life. God is not required to save any. In fact, or the fact rather that he does highlights his love and mercy and calls forth devotion from us. Paul could say in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's our response. That's our our call each day. It's a reasonable act of worship in light of what God has done. After reflecting on God's grace and mercy, Paul's conclusion is this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. To him belongs all glory. And these disciples who were afraid of Paul, even John, could stand back and wonder to see what God had done. In him and in them. So too, when we come and consider the greatness of the love of our God, we should be in awe and in wonder. We consider the depth of our sin and yet the full measure of his salvation in Jesus Christ. How amazing indeed that God could love one, many such as us, To God alone be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we study your love, it is not 
that which leads to weaker worship, but to greater worship, to greater reverence and awe. We pray that you would work that in us. We would marvel at the love that you have for us, that we would want to tell others. Father, give us a healthy awareness of our sin and a wonderful awareness of your love and mercy and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Work that in us by your Spirit, that there would be an element in us of wonder when we consider the title that we bear, child of God. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Number 431 in our hymnals, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued. I'd like to sing all five of those stanzas. And on the last stanza, we'll sing the stanza a cappella, but then if you would join us on the refrain or, or lead us in the refrain. Let's stand to sing.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we consider your love for us and the sending of your Son, we pray that you would lead by your Spirit, you would lead us to a great love for you, that as that word goes forth today, that it would pierce many a heart and stir minds unto repentance and faith. We pray that for the ministry there in Toronto. New Horizon Church and Reverend Mitch Prasad and the work that they do there. Lord, may there be relationships established between families that would draw people to faith in your son and that the family would be expanded to include many of those immigrants there into the church there in in Canada. As we give for this cause, we ask your blessing upon the word as it goes forth from that place. We ask that you would hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen. For our confession tonight, I want to do something a bit different. I want us to look at the canons of Dort. We're not going to, I'm not going to preach another sermon. I just want us to look for, at a few of these uh, articles. That's on page 897, 897 in the back of the hymnal. Uh, just as a, a means of bolstering what we've heard tonight and as we think upon what Scripture teaches concerning God's love and our responsibility So I'm going to be looking, I'm just going to be reading articles 1 through 5 of the first head of doctrine, found on page 897, and then also article 5 of the second uh, head of doctrine. I'll show you where that is in just a moment. 
Article 1 speaks of Scripture's teaching concerning God's right to condemn all people. Since all people have sinned in Adam and have come under the sentence of the curse and eternal death, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave the entire human race in sin and under the curse and to condemn them on account of their sin. As the apostle says, the whole world is liable to the condemnation of God. Romans 3.19. All have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. We see the manifestation of God's love. But this is how God showed his love. He sent his only begotten son into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 4.9 and John 3.16. In order that the people may be brought to faith, God mercifully sends proclaimers of this very joyful message to the people he wishes and at the time he wishes. By this ministry, people are called to repentance and faith in Christ crucified. For how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without someone preaching? How shall they preach unless they have been sent? Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. Article 4 says this, God's anger remains on those who do not believe this gospel, but those who do receive it and embrace Jesus the Savior with a true and living faith are delivered through him from God's anger and from destruction and receive the gift of eternal life. Article 5, the cause or blame for this unbelief as well as for all other sins is not at all in God, but in man. Faith in Jesus Christ, however, And salvation through him is a free gift of God. As scripture says, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. Likewise, it has been freely given to you to believe in Christ. And then turning to page 904. As we think of the matter of Christ's death and human redemption through it. Article 5 states this. It is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel. We see, dear people of God, the love of God, and it is to lead us to share that love of God with others. So let us go forth from this place doing just that. Please stand as you receive God's parting blessing. Now may the God who did not even hold back his very own son, but handed him over for us all, provide you with every good thing, every good thing you need in order to do his will and to do in you what pleases him. Amen.